This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. I want to let you know that out in the Resource Center, we have some resources if you want to go through this summer study and read ahead. We'll be covering about a chapter a week. And if you'd like to read ahead and apply this and think it through in your own life, uh, maybe even do a summer devotional tracking through what we're doing. I have several. I'm your personal shopper. I've scoured all the Esther commentaries, and I've pulled two that I think are the best uh, that would be helpful for you. Here's the first one. It's a, uh, it's a book on Esther and Ruth, so you get a bonus, not just Esther, but her dear friend Ruth. Uh, not really. They weren't friends. But uh, anyway, this is by Ian Dugid. And uh, it is an excellent book, and this is in essence sermons that are transcribed. So uh, I'm getting a lot of material, a lot of help from him. I'll be quoting him today. Um, And it's very, it emphasizes the gospel a lot in the book of Esther. So that's a helpful resource. Uh, And here's a second one. Now this title is a a little bit chunky, but it's Inconspicuous Providence. Uh, So they really didn't title it as a bestseller, Inconspicuous Providence, The Gospel According to Esther by Brian Gregory. This book is outstanding. Um, it It goes chapter by chapter, a lot of verse by verse commentary, and then he has applications that are very gospel oriented as well, hence the title, The Gospel According to Esther. And um, it, it, this is what the book we talked about last week in the introductions about. It's about the hidden work of God, the inconspicuous, you don't see it, providence. That's the ruling and reigning and directing of the Lord. And then the last book is on the sovereignty of God. This is one of my favorite books ever. It's called Trusting God Even When Life Hurts by Jerry Bridges, who recently uh, went to be with the Lord. He died in his 80s uh, just not too long ago. But this is probably one of his best-known books, Trusting God. What this book is about is how in the difficulties of life, particularly when you are suffering, how do you trust God? And uh, why is he trustworthy? And what does that look like? It's immensely practical. It's not a study of the book of Esther. However, it's a very practical approach to applying the truths of Esther, trusting the Lord when life is difficult. We're going to see today that uh, Mordecai and Esther uh, have other ways. They have shortcuts rather than the trust in the Lord. Uh, but, But this book talks about even in difficulty, How do you trust the Lord? I highly, highly recommend this. And this is a book you could read as we're going through the summer. Again, I don't even think Esther's mentioned in it that I recall. But uh, but it is a book that will help you trust the Lord. Okay, here we are. Esther chapter 2. I'm going to review real quickly last week. Then we're going to read this chapter and jump in. Last week, we uh, started the book of Esther by reading chapter 1. And we noted that the chapter is about a guy named King Ahasuerus, who is the king uh, uh, of the Persian Empire, a broad empire, and we noted the fact that in the first chapter, God is never mentioned. And in fact, in the entire book of Esther, God is never mentioned. He's, it's not even close. There's, there's nothing about the Israelites' faith that is mentioned. Uh, there's nothing about prayer. There's nothing about worship in the temple. There's nothing about the Torah, which is the, the written word of God, the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, there is nothing about Sabbath. There is nothing about dietary laws. There is nothing about what the entire rest of the Old Testament is about. 
and that is the genius of the book. The genius of the book is that it is about God, and yet he is never mentioned. It is a book about God preserving his people, but he doesn't preserve his people through observable miracles, like the parting of the Red Sea. He preserves his people through a series of what appears to be coincidences. Throughout the book, there are these situations that it just so happened that, and it just so happened that this happened and that happened. It is God working for his people through the very ordinary stuff of life. And that's why this book is immensely practical to us. Because in your life and my life, we don't see Red Seas parting daily. We don't see miracles. We don't see 5,000 people fed with loaves and fishes daily. We don't see the Son of God walking literally out of a tomb in our life daily. We don't see the miracles of the Bible day in and day out. So we must be reminded, I mean, if the Red Sea parts, there's no question who's on the throne. But when it's Tuesday afternoon, and your boss is chewing you out and blaming, it's very fuzzy who's on the throne then. Uh, Wednesday at 2 a.m. when your baby is crying and keeping you up all night, it's very fuzzy who is on the throne at that moment. So the book of Esther shows us in the normal circumstances of life that God works to protect and to provide for his people. Thus, he's never even mentioned. He is it's just implicit throughout that he is working. Well, what we find in the first chapter, here's the providence, here's what's happened so far. This guy, King Ahasuerus, very wealthy, very rich, rules from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces. He throws a six-month feast and party for all the army and all his officials. Then he throws a seven-day drinking festival for the men of his city in Susa. After seven days, he's very drunk, and he is showing everybody all that he possesses. He's been showing uh, his garden. I mean, it's got gold and silver couches. There's stone engraved walkways. It's out of control opulence. And he's showing it off to everybody. And then he decides, I will also show my wife off, who's very attractive. So he calls and says, Queen Vashti, come. He wants to parade her in front of a, a city of men who've been drinking for seven days. It's just men. He wants to portray, parade her in front of a drunken city and and she will have none of it. She refuses to come. And so what he does is he basically fires her as queen, gets rid of her, and uh, a few other things happen. But that's, that's the heart of it, that we lose the queen of Persia, and that's going to open the door for chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he was angry at his wife for not responding to his command. When the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officials in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. 
He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict was proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem, to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to the king Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she brought up, was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuch who guard, eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning, and we pray that you would speak to us through this text, such a, such a world away such circumstances and such a culture so foreign to us and our daily experience, and yet we believe that there is immense uh, practicality and truth for us here today. So speak to us, show us your hidden hand, show us the Savior, the Lord Jesus, and Lord, 
stir our hearts to trust you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that's quite a doozy of a chapter. Here's how it starts. It starts with the king thinking back on Vashti and remembering what he had decreed. It says, verse uh, one, that he remembered her, and, and probably this means uh, he remembered what she had done and what had been decreed against her. He's probably somewhat sad. He was drunk. He acted irrationally. He uh, said she could never come before him again. It was put into an irrevocable law. And so he's probably sad about that. So the, the young men around him have a plan, and it is a very pagan young man plan. It is Let's get you some virgins. That's literally what he says. Let's get women. You need women, and uh, you need to put these women in the harem, and then you need to pick yourself a wife, a new queen, out of this harem. So we see from the outside that God is going to work through a system that is deeply flawed, deeply dehumanizing, deeply sexist. Uh, it is a deeply uh, broken empire, this Persian empire. And um, so this is where we're going to see God work. So what they do is he goes throughout all 127 provinces this is a huge area. As I said before, it is massive from India to Ethiopia. It is a broad, it's the most powerful kingdom in the world at this time. Uh, it's like 480, uh, 480-ish BC, and it's the most powerful kingdom in the world. And so they send uh, people through all of the provinces looking for the most beautiful young women, unmarried women, to bring to the capital, and they're all going to be placed under Haggai the eunuch. There's a lot of eunuchs in this book. There were seven eunuchs last week. Uh, in the story. A eunuch is a castrated male. And in the, old, uh, in, in the old world under a sultan like this, the eunuchs were put in charge of the harem. There was a harem of women that were there for the king's sexual pleasure, and they would put a eunuch in charge of them because being a castrated male, uh, he, would do no, uh, he was no risk to be among the women to take advantage of them or anything like that. So he's in charge of them. Now, Children's Bibles make this out uh, appropriately so to be a beauty contest, that they're going to gather a beauty contest like Miss America, Miss Persia, and whoever sings the best and uh, can answer uh, a question about world affairs on the, on the spot, she will be the new queen. Uh, it is much more than a beauty contest. Um, one commentator calls chapter two a Cinderella story only much seedier. It is a seedy story. They are in a harem uh, among concubines, uh, so this is not only a beauty contest, as we'll see once we get into it. So here's what we, what, what we uh, meet, uh, this Jewish family in verse 5. We find out there's a guy named Mordecai, who traces his lineage back to Kish. That'll be very important in a few weeks. We'll find out. Maybe next week. I can't remember. Yeah, I think next week we're going to find that out. So we find this guy named Mordecai, and we find out that he was brought to, he was carried out of Jerusalem about a hundred, a little more than a hundred, about 114 years ago. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, took Jerusalem and took captives into Babylon, and this guy's family was taken there. So he has, he's not 114 years ago old, it was probably his grandfather that was taken. So he has grown up in the Persian Empire. Now, 50 years prior to this, 
there was an open door where people could go back to Jerusalem. And he has chosen, his family has chosen not to. They have chosen to remain exiles. They have chosen to live uh, not where they can freely worship in Israel, in, in Jerusalem, but they have chose to stay in a pagan nation, to be part of the empire, and to uh, this, is, this is the choice they have made. He is embedded in a foreign culture. He is a Jew in exile. And that makes this story relatable to us because the New Testament calls Christians exiles. First Peter uh, says, in First Peter, he says to the Christians that we are sojourners and exiles. Paul says it this way, your citizenship is in heaven. So once you become a Christian, you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you are part of his kingdom. His kingdom is not of this world. Your primary identity, uh, happy 4th of July to you, uh, but your primary identity as a Christian is not your nation, uh, it's not your, your people, your tribe, your culture. Your primary identity is to the kingdom of God. You are a citizen of heaven, no matter what geographic area, what country you live in, what language you speak, uh, you are a citizen of heaven. So we are exiles as well. So this context is very relevant for us because Mordecai and Esther are believers in God living as exiles in a foreign context. Next thing we meet is he has a daughter named Esther. Very interesting, verse seven, that we get her name. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther. We will never hear her called a Hadassah to my memory the rest of the book. Hadassah means myrtle, uh, and so that is her Jewish name. She has a Jewish name, but she also has a Persian name, and it is Esther, which means star. It's probably a name after the name of the goddess Ishtar. So she has this goddess name in her culture, but she also has a Hebrew name. And it's very important that we get that, that because she is living in two worlds. She's a Jew living in exile. And she lives in these two different worlds, and they are going to collide. And the collision of these two different worlds is where we're going to see God at work rescuing his people. So the first important thing we learn when we first meet her is that her name is Hadassah, that she is living covertly as a Jew in Persia. She's, she's under the radar uh, as a Jew in Persia. The second thing we know about her is that her body is attractive. She is shapely, which is very important to this story because that's what the king is looking for. She has a beautiful figure. So that refers to her shape, and she is lovely to look at. Why are we getting that detail? Because that is the qualification for becoming the new queen. You must be attractive uh, physically. So that's the second detail we get. So what happens when all of the attractive young women are gathered into the harem? Well, no doubt, Esther, who is beautiful, lovely to look at, she is drawn into that. Now, we don't know if she goes willingly, if she wants to be there, uh, if it's really bad to be there, if, if ladies do not want to be a part of this, if they're thinking, this is my shot at fame, is it like a reality show to some of them, I'm going to be queen, or something like that, or is it terrible to them because I'm taken away from my family. And I'm, if I don't make queen, there'll only be one. I'll live out my life as a concubine in the palace. So we don't know what her attitude is about this. It doesn't tell us. So she and the queen candidates, they all gather in this harem. And we find out, first of all, in verse 9, that this Haggai, the eunuch in charge, that she pleased him and won his favor. 
Now, commentators point out that winning his favor is different than finding favor. Finding favor is passive, but she's actively seeking favor. She wins his favor. She is trying to do well in the harem. She is trying to move up. She wins the favor of the guy in charge, and he quickly provides her with cosmetics and portion for food and then seven young women to care for him. What it's saying is she's making her way up in the queen contest. She is advancing because she has done whatever. Maybe she's not only attractive, but charming as well. Whatever, this, this, the guy in charge likes her, and so he gives her cosmetics, which is to beautify her, which we'll see in a minute, and he gives her food, which is important because in the world, five, uh, in most of the world throughout our history, most people have lived without enough food to eat, which means the average person historically has been extremely thin. But wealthy people had much food to eat. So being, having some meat on your bones was a sign of royalty. So they feed. They're probably uh, fattening up these gals a little bit who may not, may not have much to them. Uh, they're filling out a little bit because that will be beautiful for the king. So she's eating her food. She's got her cosmetics. And she has attendants. So she is now being treated like someone that's royal. She has people, I guess, other virgins that are tending to her. So what do we see at this point? She's moving up in the world. She's moving up in Persia, and her faith is absolutely hidden. Verse 10, Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. She's advancing in the culture. Her beauty and her charm are making a way for her in the world, but her faith is hidden. She is in the world, and she is of the world. Hiding her faith, going along with the culture, under the radar is her commitment to God. Well, the king's, the king's selection process is unusual, even by pagan standards. Usually, in, by pagan standards, a king would uh, select a queen... Uh, maybe he's not even interested in her, but he'll select someone that's a political uh, alliance. So it's really smart to marry someone who's the daughter of some king in another country, because then you have an alliance. I mean, he's always like you. It's his daughter. You're the son-in-law of another king or whatever. So usually you marry for political alliance, and then you have a harem of women that you're attracted to, but you have this political arrangement of who sort of you're married uh, to for formal uh, and state purposes. Or maybe even you marry someone you fall in love with. But this is a very different process. He's simply looking for someone that is beautiful. And so they go through this process that's really something else, isn't it? it uh, verse 12, it says that they go through one year. So once you come into the harem, you have a year of beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh. It's literally translated in oil of myrrh. So they are soaking in this rare oil uh, for six months. I mean, not 24-7, I assume, but they are giving these beauty treatments. And then uh, six months with spices and ointment. 
So commentators, they don't really know what this is all about. Some say that probably the, the oil would remove blemishes. It might even, over repeated exposure, uh, some of this might even change one's skin tone. We don't know what for, what the goal of that would be, but it could even be something like that. But anyway, they are taking care of their skin, and they are have these spices and ointments uh, for a year. After the year... Uh, then each woman has a night with the king, and she can bring whatever she desires. Verse 13, she can bring anything into the king's chambers that she wants to bring. So evidently she could bring clothing, she could bring perfumes, food, whatever to make this night uh, memorable for the king. Uh, let there be no confusion about what is happening here. Uh, verse 14, in the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem, custody of Sheagaz, uh, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. The most feared question of every parent in Bible stories is when the kid asks, what is a concubine? Uh, I, <laughs> that is that awkward moment. A concubine is... Uh, a mistress that lives in the palace that the king has sex with whenever he wants. That, that's what a concubine is. She is just someone there for that purpose. So after they have a night where the virgins lose their virginity with the king, then they are placed and in the second harem, which for the rest of their lives, they would just be a concubine. And this is grievous when you think about it. What a terrible existence. Um, that, that, that's where, that that's where the losers will all spend their lives, the one who doesn't get chosen as queen. She will be a concubine. So that's what happens. Well, what we find out in this story is that after uh, spending the night, verse 17 tells us the king loved Esther more than all the women. He had been with a lot of these gals. Uh, we don't know uh, exactly how many, but this is taking place uh, four years after Vashti died. So he may have been off at war for a while. There was a year for everybody to soak in myrrh. But for at least three years, uh, he has been with these gals, and now she is the best of all. Uh, and so he places the royal crown on her head, and he makes her queen. Verse 18, the king gave a feast for all his officials. It's called Esther's Feast. So we now have a queen I mean, he doesn't know these gals. You think about this? He just, she's beautiful, and I enjoyed the evening, and so she is the new queen. Uh, throws a feast, and then he grants remission of taxes to the provinces. Wouldn't that be great? We're going to have a new president in the fall. Wouldn't it be great whoever's elected to say, I'm so excited, we're having a party for my spouse, and no taxes. I mean, that would be great, but it, didn't, it won't, won't happen for us, but it happened for them. It was just, I'm so happy. Esther's so great. She's lovely. Uh, met my soulmate, maybe. I don't know. And so now it's no taxes for everybody. She wins the contest, and he throws a feast in her honor. How do we apply that passage to our lives today on this holiday weekend in 2016? What does this have to do with us? I've got two points for you. Here's the first one. God is the hero of the story. I'm going to take a few minutes about uh, and talk about how to interpret Old Testament narrative. And I hope this isn't just a lesson. I hope this, this is super important to reading your Bible. Most of the Bible is narrative. And so how do we read narrative stories, especially like this one, when there's no mention of God in it? Um, 
here's the problem. We tend to read the Bible looking for heroes. That's our problem. That, that is the way we were raised in Sunday school. That is the felt board lesson. This is the hero, and this is the moral lesson. The problem with this is that God is the hero of the Bible, uh, and it is not individuals. Now, individuals, we can learn from individuals. We can admire uh, certain lessons from individual lives. I mean, Paul, after all, says, um, follow me as I follow the Lord. There is that qualification, as I follow the Lord, which is critical. But, but we can certainly learn lessons. Actually, in a few chapters, Esther's going to do something phenomenal. She's going to say, if I die to save my people, I'll do it. Phenomenal lesson in courage and faith towards God. But the problem is when we read the Bible making heroes out of humans and we don't highlight their humanity, we don't recognize their weaknesses, we don't see their failures, then we make the Bible very inaccessible. The Bible just becomes this storybook of all-stars who did these inhuman things that we can never relate to. That's sort of the felt board approach to reading the Bible. The heroes that are so unlike us, that have nothing in common with us. And we read the Bible and say, man, that's phenomenal history. Now I go to my weak, sorry, pathetic Christian faith because I don't live like those people. I'm up and down. And so the Bible becomes very distant from us. Secondly, we minimize grace. If all the people in the Bible are heroic, all the stories are amazing, all these people are like superheroes, these are like Bible Avengers and stuff like this, if that's all the amazing who they are, then, then who needs Jesus? Why does Jesus come if all these people are so godly and holy and perfect and amazing? Why do we need a Savior? Because they're not all perfect. They're like you and me. They are flawed. The Bible is the story of God using imperfect, weak, sinful people because that's the only people he has to work with. There are no other kind of people. And so it gives us hope when we read a story and we see someone's humanity and we see God using them in spite of their humanity. We see God redeeming their sins and their failures. We see God patient with people that blow it. We, when we see that, then there is hope for us. If the stories of the Bible are all moral lessons that we just take the heroic attribute of that individual and say, be like that, then the Bible is not very hopeful for us because how do I just be like that? I read the story and I say, I'm not like that at points, or I see the failures and I say, I am like that at points, and I come to the Lord and I ask for his forgiveness for my failures, and I ask for his power to change me and make me more like Christ. So when we, we are looking for God at work, we will see in the Bible, God works through broken vessels. God works through broken people. And Mordecai and Esther are like that. And what do you make of Esther? I mean, like I said, later she is going to risk her life. But what do you make of Esther in this chapter? This is a story of a young Jewish woman losing her virginity in a pagan king's bed and pleasing him more than all the women. I don't mean to be hard on Esther, but the text does not portray her as an innocent victim. There are markers in the text that portray Mordecai and Esther as those who are compromising. 
they are compromised. There's a, there's a few things in the text that we point out. One is, obviously, she lives in these two worlds. She's Hadassah, but in the whole letter, I mean, whole story, she's known as Esther. Um, but secondly, she conceals her faith. This comes up twice in, chat, in verse 10. Uh, Esther had not made known her people or kindred. Verse 20 Esther had not made known her kindred or her people. She does not want to be known as a follower of God. Now, we're not altogether sure why she hides that, why she compromises in her faith. But it is a compromise because when you think about it, she doesn't, in the story, uh, she doesn't honor what would need to be honored to be a follower of God. She doesn't honor the dietary laws, uh, uh, presumably. She doesn't honor the Sabbath, presumably. And her compromise, her hiding her faith becomes clearer when you contrast her with Bible characters in similar situations. Think of Daniel and his friends. Daniel and his friends are also taken into captivity. Uh, actually, Mordecai and Esther live freely in exile, so that there's a statement there as well. They, are, they have not gone back to Israel. Uh, to Jerusalem. But, but think about Daniel and his friends. They are taken by Nebuchadnezzar, so they live in a pagan land as well. But what does, what do Daniel, what does he do when he is under the oversight of uh, leaders in a pagan environment? He keeps the dietary laws. He asks for permission. He says, look, can I eat according to the diet, in essence, God calls me to eat? So in this case, he's going to eat vegetables. Can I, must I, can I do that? And if we perform as well as everyone else, will you let us continue to eat this way? He asks for, at least asks for permission and, and keeps the dietary laws in a foreign world. Or think about what happens uh, with his friends when they are called to bow down to a pagan statue. They let their faith be known. They refuse to do what would displease the Lord and bow down to a pagan statue. Uh, and they are, it costs them. They're thrown into a fire. Now, God preserves them. They take a stand for God, and he preserves them. Or think about Daniel. When he is outlawed, he's not allowed to pray. What does he do? I must obey God and not man. He prays, and it costs him. He's thrown into a lion's den. So in a foreign world, he does not hide his faith. He takes a stand for his faith. He, he risks everything. Uh, and so we even have a song about a guy like that. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. But as Ian Dugan says in his commentary, would anyone sing dare to be an Esther in chapter 2? Now maybe later, but would we sing that in chapter 2? He goes on to write, if someone is willing to suffer the consequences, full obedience to God's law is always an option. It's not easy. It's fearful. It might be rare and even unthinkable, but it is always possible. And you see it in the scripture. You see Joseph when Potiphar's wife makes sexual advances to Joseph, he runs away and gets thrown into a dungeon because of it. The Bible has stories of people in foreign context not hiding their faith. Twice we get that in the chapter, not hiding their faith, but standing for their faith. There is a time to stand against the system. 
There is a time to stand up, but Esther complies, and she complies well, winning the favor of Haggai and the king. Mordecai complies. As a matter of fact, I read a quote from a Jewish scholar in the 1400s. This was how Jews were interpreting, uh, at least one Jewish scholar was interpreting this story in the 1400s. He writes, when Mordecai heard the king's herald announcing that whoever had a daughter or sister should bring her to the king to have intercourse with an uncircumcised heathen, why did he not risk his life to take her to some deserted place to hide until the danger would pass? He should have been killed rather than to submit to such an act. Why did Mordecai keep righteous Esther from, why didn't he keep her from idol worship? Why was he not more careful? Where was his righteousness, his piety, and his valor? It's easy to take shots at people in the Bible. I'm only doing it to dismantle and deconstruct the hero exemplary approach to Bible characters that we have Uh, particularly in this story. It's easier for their faith to fly under the radar. It's easier to assimilate than speak up, and that's what we we do. And because God shows us this, this chapter is eminently practical. Because I know what that's like, don't you? Don't you know what it's like to be in a situation where it's a lot easier to assimilate than to speak up? It's a lot easier to go with the flow than to identify as a believer. This can be something very small. This can be something as small as laughing along with a joke at a joke that doesn't honor the Lord at work or with friends or at school. Someone tells something that's inappropriate for any number of reasons. And to just be a part of the crowd, it's very easy. We can just assimilate in something super, super small like that, or it can be very significant. You can be tempted in your job, perhaps, to just go with the flow rather than representing the Lord. Maybe the, maybe the common culture of your job is to small, it's not a big deal, it's small, but sort of deceive clients or potential clients. Um, Maybe just not tell the whole story. Maybe just emphasize one thing and let something else that they need to know not be known. It's just the way things are done. It's called sales. That's what it's called. It's easy to just deceive. Maybe it's falsifying a report, but everybody does that. I mean, nobody says everything in the report. Everybody does that. Maybe it's being liberal with the way you report billable hours, always rounding to your advantage and never uh, to the company's or the client's advantage. So it can be something like that. Just this is the culture. This is how life is in the empire. Look, this is the way it was in the empire. You gather up all the women and you, you, you try them out in the bedroom. That's, that was the culture. That's how the empire works. Nobody can fight the empire. No one can change the way it is. It's not really going to make a difference. Or maybe you're a student. And maybe it's just what everybody does to find out what's on the test before you get the test. I know it's summertime, but let me just remind you, you'll be back in school shortly. Uh, Enjoy your break, but you're going to go back and you're going to take tests. 
and the temptation. Well, everybody talks to somebody who had the test earlier in the day to find out what's on it. I mean, that's just what you do. That's the advantage of having the afternoon class. Come on. I mean, that's just what you do. Maybe your temptation isn't ethical, but it's relational. Maybe you're a married Christian, and in your work environment, it's just not a problem to be overly friendly, even flirtatious with someone of the opposite sex that you work with. And so after work, we go out together as a group. It's just what you do. It's just the, the banter back and forth, the relationship. It, it, it's just, no, I, I don't put up appropriate guardedness in how I relate. That would be strange. I just relate like everyone else does. And, and maybe there is someone that you have more attention on. Well, that's not that unusual. That's how everyone does it. And maybe you're finding yourself emotionally drawn in or attracted to this person who's telling you things from their own life, and you're tempted to reciprocate with telling things uh, from your life as well. That's just how people relate. It's not church everywhere, okay? Life is not community group and Sunday school. This is how people relate in the empire. And it's just better not to make waves. Small compromises, small compromises from the very beginning. Don't even say who you are. Well, boom, she makes it up. She starts advancing quickly because she didn't say anything at the beginning, which may have not made a big difference. It may have gotten her kicked out. It probably wouldn't have gotten her killed or anything. We don't know. But even if it would have, later she's going to say, if I die, I die. I'm doing the right thing. So, But we're, we're in chapter 2 where she's not doing the right thing. At times it is costly to stand against the empire. It could cost your job. It could cost opportunity. There's opportunity cost to standing for the Lord at times in our lives. It, it might cost you some friendships. And I'm not advocating being some kind of arrogant, pompous, self-righteous person condemning every... That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about living in a way that reflects that Jesus Christ has changed our lives and is our Lord. Living like the gospel is real to us. Living like we trust the good news of Jesus more than anything else. It might cost you friendships. It might cost you popularity. Jesus seems to indicate that. He, they hated me, so why do you think people aren't going to hate you, is what Jesus said to his followers. It, it might cost us life as an exile in the empire. We are just like Mordecai and Esther. What we're going to learn from this story, and it's the story for you and for me as well, is that the doctrine of providence, God's hidden hand at work, God determines your future. God determines your pathway. Your boss does not control your future. Your social affirmation and what everybody thinks about you, that does not control your future. And this story is going to show us that. It's God that controls our future. It's he who guides us. So I want to ask you today, where are you tempted to hide your faith? Where are you tempted? It's the only repeated truth in this chapter, hidden faith. It's repeated so that we, it stands out and we get it and we see the danger of it. Where are you tempted to hide your faith? Where is it easy for you to let no one in the palace know 
who you really are. Are we enjoying the luxury of the oil of myrrh spa treatment rather than risk all of this pampering by speaking up? What would it cost me to identify with Christ in a world that, that less and less is cheering that identification? There are fewer, the applause is getting quieter and quieter for those who believe in Christ. To whom do you not want to speak about Jesus? Who do, who, to whom do I not want them to really know what it, what it means that I believe? I don't want them to really know everything, for then they would either view me wrongly, they would see that I'm acting hypocritically. What relationship do you fear would be harmed if you were outed? What opportunity do you not want to lose? What advantage do you believe in family, in friends, in neighborhood, on the kids' sports team, in, your mar in the marketplace, in your extended family, in your job? Where do you believe that it's safer to be closeted than it is to be an open believer in Jesus Christ? For Esther, she believed that it was safer, for whatever reason we don't know, not to let anyone know. But God cares for us. God has our best interest at heart. God is working all things to our good. God is writing our story. God has your best in view. God is for you. And the scripture says, if God is for you, who can be against you? The story of Esther and the story of the Bible is that God is the hero. He preserves his people. And he preserves his people through unlikely sources. He keeps his promises even when his people are not very promising. He keeps his promises through unpromising people. Our goal is to trust him and not preserve ourselves. Discipleship is about trusting God, not manipulating, not balancing, not working everything out in my own wisdom so that I protect myself and get my way. It's not about self-preservation, doing what I think would be reasonable to rise in the ranks and be successful. It's about following Jesus at whatever cost, like Daniel and his friends, even though God is the hero of that story as well. He is the hero of all the stories. And we see that because number two, not only is God the hero of the story, but God redeems even our sins for his purposes. This is why chapter two and understanding what's really going on here, and I understand why we call it a beauty contest alone in children's ministry. I get that. We're not talking, well, I don't think I'm talking explicitly here, but we're certainly not talking explicitly there. I'm just trying to explain what's going on. That's why seeing this is so important, <clears throat> because God redeems. He redeems. God's not limited. He doesn't write Esther off. He actually uses her in the midst of her own compromise. In the commentary I, I recommended by Brian Gregory, Inconspicuous Providence, he writes, God's grace is bigger than any compromises we've made. Do you know that? God's grace is bigger than any compromise we make. Oh, so I can compromise all I want and it's covered? No, may it never be, Paul says. May we never sin and presume upon grace. May we never, because then we haven't really understood grace. Grace frees us to obey, not to disobey. 
okay? So we don't compromise because God covers it. But I want to tell you that God does cover our compromise. This story is about God's grace being bigger than compromise. And today, you may be down the road in compromise, and I want you to know the message that God's grace covers, that God welcomes you. He calls you to repent, and he welcomes you back into his arms. He, he welcomes you to live openly. He calls you to live openly. Compromise usually starts with very small steps. It usually doesn't start with a massive collapse. It starts with very small steps, small decisions along the way. And today, maybe you find yourself there. Maybe you find yourself in a huge compromise. You're in a situation, you're in a sinful relationship that nobody in the room knows about but God. And you're here today because God knows knows, and he wants you to hear this, that the answer is not more hiding, the answer is not more, more covering, the answer is not more how can I keep this person from, the answer is not more how can I manage my stories so that everybody, so that I got everything controlled. No, the answer is to come out and identify with the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and to repent wherever necessary. Here's how God uses compromise, that she compromises, but she becomes the queen. And there's gonna become a situation where all the Jews are gonna be exterminated. There's gonna be a gen genocide, but because she's the queen, she has the king's ear, and she is going to, humanly speaking, save her people. That's what's going to happen. God's going to use her compromise. Well, what if she obeyed God? He would have preserved the people another way. God's not limited. Well, man, it's really good that she did this. It's good that she didn't tell anybody because she couldn't have saved God's people later. That's the wrong way to look at it. The way to look at it is that once you're down the road, God will use the circumstances of our lives. Maybe today you have ethical compromise, sexual compromise, friendship compromise that is affecting your life. Any area where you have intentionally, willfully closeted your faith, hidden Jesus from view. The amazing truth of Scripture is that God hates sin. He hates sin so much that he became a man, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, and Jesus, fully God and fully man, died on the cross for our sins. Jesus took the condemnation for our sins. He died. That's how much God despises and abhors sin before his holy character, is that he has to become man to come and free us from our sin. But he also redeems us. He loves us. He, he gives us new life through his death and resurrection. And part of redemption is not only forgiving us, it is giving us power to change, and it is redeeming where we have failed. Now, I can't promise you that your sins don't have some kind of lingering circumstances. Some sins have lingering circumstances that trail throughout life. Might be legal circumstances, uh, might be restitution, that needs to be made in some context uh, might be sometimes even some physical suffering that could be tied to something. So there are at times when there are circumstances that trail us. But even then, God can redeem all of that for his glory and for our good. It's hard to think of a greater compromiser in the whole Bible than Peter. But think about how God redeemed his circumstance. When Jesus is being tried, Peter is denying. Peter, who knew Jesus and walked with him for three years, was loved by Christ, knew him personally, 
uh, closer than any of us know God, knew him. But when Jesus was arrested, Peter was cowardly. He went under the radar. He pulled a Mordecai. He didn't want anybody to know. And so when he's asked three times, he, deny, he doesn't just deny. Uh, he curses. He curses God. I don't even know that GD guy or whatever he said. He curses him. He doesn't just mildly, well, I hope nobody finds out. He, he blasphemes, he stands against God and says, I want nothing to do with him to save his own skin. And what happens? Jesus it dies on the cross, is buried. He's resurrected to new life. And with gospel love, he comes to Peter and he restores Peter. And then on the day that the church is born, the birth of the church, it is Peter the denier who stands up and proclaims the good news that Jesus is alive and will forgive everyone who believes in him. You talk about a turnaround. Jesus didn't say, well, hey, you denied me. It's over. He forgave him. He restored him. And he empowered him to be used in a glorious way for the Lord. And Peter, I'm sure, always walked with a limp always aware that Jesus died on the cross for me and he was preparing to die while I was denying. He loved me when I was unlovely towards him. He welcomed me when I said I have nothing to do with him. He embraced me when I was separating myself from him and then he used him in a powerful way. If you were here today and you were believing the lie, because of what I've done, because of what I've compromised, it's over for me. You need to know that God is the hero of the story. Mordecai and Esther compromise, God redeems and he's going to use Esther to save his people. Peter compromises, doesn't want to be known, afraid of a servant girl. He, he denies and curses Jesus to a servant girl. Jesus forgives him, he repents, and he receives power to be used by God. You're, you are not, it is not over for you. I don't care how deep you are embedded. I don't care how hidden you are in the empire. I don't care what you've done. God calls you to come out to acknowledge your fear, acknowledge your compromise, acknowledge your rejection of the Savior who loves you, acknowledge the selfishness which wants to promote you more than honor your Savior, acknowledge that as sin, repent from that, ask God to forgive you, and start making things right. Receive grace in the middle of your compromise. If Esther is a flawless hero, then I don't know what to say to you today. I don't know what to say. Go be a hero good luck on that. But if Esther is a compromiser who will experience the providential work of God, even so, even so, then I have much to say to you because God is a God of forgiveness and we see it in Jesus Christ. He restores. Turn from your compromise and trust the Lord in the light of the gospel. He is faithful to work all things for your good and it's only going to get worse if you stay hidden. It's only going to get worse. Open up right now is the best time, the best time to acknowledge hidden sin and compromise and come to the Lord and say, I want help, and then go to someone who can help you, a brother or sister who's a Christian. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.